0: All right, so I just want to say good morning. I'm Sally Harrison with the Mesa Chamber. Um, Welcome to our Zoom call. This is the third call with our friends at Jenny Strauss. And today's uh, call is um, on restarting your business after COVID-19, managing employment liability and regulatory risks. And um, we've got our friends, John, Chris and Otto on the call. And I'm not sure who's leading this, who's starting off. Otto's waving, so it might be him. Um, well, and I think are, I think
1: we'll let John start off and then, then Chris <laughs> will go and then, then I'll go and then we're going to do like we did last time. Most of the time we'll spend okay. just chatting with you about what you're seeing and what we're seeing.
0: Okay, well I'm going to let you guys introduce yourself and uh, we'll start with John and you can just take it away then. We've still got people coming in, so we'll, um, we'll make sure that we've got them in the room and uh, muted as they, they join us.
2: Thanks, Sally. Uh, John Belaitis here. Uh, I chair the Labor and Employment Department at Jennings Strauss (laughs) in Phoenix, and I have my partners uh, Otto, Jill, and Chris Mason with me today. Um, I want to first thank the chamber and thank you, uh, Sally, for giving this another opportunity to visit with all of you in what really is sort of like the the next chapter in this ongoing story of COVID-19 and the workplace. And what we're going to do today um, is I'm going to talk a little bit about what, as employers, you should be thinking about in uh, bringing your workforce back. And then Chris is going to talk a little bit about what you should be doing once those workers are back in the workplace. Still will have that background noise, Sally. Yeah,
0: I I muted auto.
2: I, I've been it's not, muted.
0: It's not auto. OK. Um, I don't know. I, now it's quiet. Okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, and then once Chris talks a little bit about what you should be doing, want those, once those workers reenter the workplace, Otto's going to talk about some CARES Act issues and some updates relating to funding and, and relief. Um, first off, uh, there probably aren't many, if any of you, on the webinar today that are unionized employers, but we do need to say at the very beginning if if there are uh, a couple of union shops on the webinar that in in looking at bringing workers back, if you are unionized or if a part of your workforce is unionized, you do need to consider your collective bargaining agreement. Uh, Chances are you've got one if you've got a unionized workforce. And those agreements typically will have what we call reinstatement provisions in them. And those provisions typically dictate when workers are furloughed or laid off, the order in which they are to be brought back. So if you do have unionized workers do take a look at your collective bargaining agreement just to make sure you are compliant with it as you bring workers back. But assuming you're not unionized, uh, we really can think about your workers probably in two categories, the people you furloughed and the people you laid off. And presumably when you made that decision, who to furlough and who to lay off weeks ago, you were forecasting who you probably were gonna bring back. You probably were predicting that you would bring back the furloughed workers and may not rehire the laid off workers. So a lot of what we're gonna talk about probably sounds like it makes more sense for furloughed employees, but it's equally applicable to people you laid off. Although my guess is that uh, you're probably going to at least start with furloughed workers rather than separated ones. Um, The question has come up over the weeks preceding this call. can you as the employer literally force a worker to come back to the workplace? And of course, with a laid off worker, the answer to that clearly is no, that would be like forcing somebody to take a job, and you can't do that. Um, And with a furloughed worker who is still technically employed, but has sort of been temporarily suspended in his or her job, you can't literally force them to come back as a practical matter either. You don't have a proverbial gun to put to their head and force them to come back to the workplace. However, you do have some leverage, and with some exceptions that Chris is going to talk about later, primarily involving the ADA, you as the employer have separation or discipline as leverage in encouraging furloughed workers to come back. So if a worker refuses or resists coming back, you can tell him or her, well, if you you don't want to come back, I'm going to have to separate you, and we're going to part ways, and then I'm going to call the next person back. So... Although you can't force people to come back, you do have that leverage. Um, One thing you need to keep in mind though, uh, is that it may be much more challenging than you are anticipating bringing workers back to the workplace, and even with that leverage in mind. And that is primarily because of the expanded unemployment benefits that the Families First Act afforded and and Governor Ducey's related executive order afforded. And what I'm talking about is the fact that A a worker who's not working now uh, can be receiving up to about $850 a week, whereas their traditional benefits per week were around $250. Families first increased that by $600 per week. And it expanded the amount of time that benefits are available from 26 weeks to 39 weeks. And it provided, uh, and especially in Governor Ducey's order, he provided that workers who are reluctant to come back to the workplace, who have bona fide concerns about coming back to the workplace relating to the virus, may nonetheless continue to maintain their benefits, even though historically a worker like that would not have been able to because they would have been considered a worker who has voluntarily quit their job. And we all know that workers who quit don't get unemployment compensation. It's workers who are are let go uh, provided misconduct isn't involved. So you have this Uh, odd trifecta of factors working against you when you are inviting people back. The people who are on unemployment compensation are receiving more money, they're going to receive it for a longer period of time, and they may be able to receive it despite the fact that they refuse an offer to return to the workplace. Um, Keep that in mind because you, you may, it may be a little more difficult for you to ramp up and staff up. Uh, as you are bringing people back, because that may present a challenge to you. Um, The good news is, if there's any good news in any of that, is that it shouldn't affect you economically. Uh, Governor Ducey's order uh, makes that expanded these benefits makes clear that employers experience rating accounts at DES will not be affected by by unemployment claims relating to COVID-19. So although uh, these factors with unemployment compensation as it's been expanded may frustrate you in your ability to staff up. It shouldn't really affect you economically. So you can keep that in mind. So here are some points to keep in in mind as you consider who to bring back and in what order. Assuming um, uh, you're not unionized, uh, you've exerted your leverage to bring them back, and despite the frustration you may find with the expanded unemployment benefits. First, you need to go back and think back in terms of what you told these people when you furloughed them. What representations did you make to them when you sent them home? And the reason this is important is because there are limited circumstances in which those types of representations or promises may end up binding you as an employer. We know. Arizona is an at will employment state, so it's very difficult for uh, the bar is very high for an employer in Arizona to become contractually obligated to uh, keep a worker employed. That's not the at will rule. The at will rule is very flexible. But let's say uh, you say to a worker when you when you furloughed them several weeks ago, will you please hold out for me Just stick it out. I promise I will bring you back and everything is going to be great. And the worker holds out and says, I'll do that for you. And in the interim, between then and now, maybe the worker is presented with another job opportunity that is really lucrative. But the worker doesn't take it because the worker is relying on your promise to bring them back. And then circumstances have changed. And tomorrow, you decide that you aren't going to bring that person back. That situation is a classic example of a worker relying on a promise that you made to their detriment. They passed up another job opportunity which is now gone. And you could find yourself on the receiving end of a claim there because that promise probably was converted to a binding obligation on your part because that worker passed up an opportunity uh, and didn't take it. So do go back and look at what you told people when when you sent them home and try to make sure that what you do now aligns with what you told them uh, when you furloughed them and sent them home. Having done that, having gone back and thought about what you said uh, when you sent them home, what should you look at or what can you look at in deciding who to bring back and when? Well, employers with the best intentions now are likely to think, you know, I think I will take the most at-risk people and either maybe not bring them back or put them at the end of the line uh, because I don't want to endanger them. Older workers, pregnant workers, workers with diabetes, workers with asthma, workers with respiratory conditions, I'm either not going to bring them back or I'm going to put them at the end of the line because I'm worried about them. The EEOC has made very clear that you cannot use those conditions as a litmus test about who to bring back and when because those are protected characteristics. Many of those are bona fide disabilities under the ADA. Chris is gonna talk a little bit about this. So despite your best intentions, you cannot use conditions like that to make decisions about who to bring back and when. Keep that in mind. So what what, what do you look at? look at? Look at benign criteria, look at uh, disciplinary history, look at seniority, look at things like that in deciding who to bring back and when but don't uh, rely on protected characteristics in deciding who and when to bring back. Um, And then once you do develop your group, your your returning group of furloughed workers, do take a quick look at it and make sure that it is not heavily weighted against a minority or minorities. This might be something that is completely unintentional on your part, but once you develop your list of workers, who you are going to bring, bring back, you look at it, and if only two of them are Hispanic and 18 of them are Caucasian, you may want to rethink what you're doing. It was, it's not intentional on your part, but it would have a disparate impact on those minorities. And then you need to revisit that list and decide if you can address that problem. Um, just need to keep that in mind. So. Let's talk about a few sort of just random points that are pretty important when you're considering all this. Your I-9 paperwork. For laid off workers, workers that you separated and that you are going to rehire. Okay, not furloughed workers, laid off workers. If the I-9 paperwork that you completed for one of those workers is older than three years, in other words, you completed it uh, longer than three years prior to the time that you are going to rehire them, you need to redo the I-9 paperwork, okay? Keep that in mind. If it's the I-9 paperwork is three or more years older by the time you rehire the worker, redo your I-9 paperwork. Um, Arizona paid sick time. Uh, Arizona paid sick time, uh, the the law that, the wage and hour law here in Arizona that, that uh, uh, includes it makes clear that if you hire a worker, rehire a worker, within nine months after laying him or her off, you have to restore his or her Arizona paid sick time bank to the position it was in when they left. Nine months. So uh, this is probably gonna cover virtually all of the workers who were laid off as a result of the pandemic, uh, because this all started in you know whatever, end of January, sometime in March. So keep that in mind if you're rehiring workers. If, if they had accrued unused time in that Arizona paid sick bank when, when you let them go, you need to restore that time when you, when you bring them back. Um, the new leave entitlements under Families First, expanded FMLA leave and emergency paid sick leave. Remember, all those leave entitlements remain intact through the end of the year, through the end of December. So you may bring a furloughed worker back. And then a week later, he or she may say, I have to take expanded FMLA leave, or I have to take emergency paid sick leave. Despite the fact that they've been furloughed for a month and a half or more, you then have to honor that request if they satisfy the criteria to take the leave. It's not like that all has now gone away because you're bringing all these workers back. All those leave entitlements remain intact through the end of the year and i will tell uh, you john john
1: i might i might add that uh, you know the science is still saying that there's a risk for infection out there that's fairly substantial and as people start to come back that's likely to spread so real leave claims that may not have been made to this point may may start being made now uh, you know yeah, that's
2: a, that, that's a great point what what you've made out of experience up to this point may kind of accelerate because you have lots of workers coming back into the workplace and potentially spiking this again. So to that point, I will suggest this to you. Um, What I found very helpful uh, before a lot of this was, especially with essential services, which have remained intact and ongoing, and and prior to a lot of furloughs, I had clients constantly calling me, okay, now I have this person coming in and saying this. Now I have this person come and saying that. There's six criteria for expanded or emergency paid sick leave. And there's, you know, one criteria for expanded FMLA leave, but they're coming in with all these combinations of situations and problems and it was just burdening the employers to have these conversations and evaluating all these claims over and over and over again. We've developed a questionnaire. It's a, it's a it's a generic document. It's about 3 pages long and all you need to, it, it it will work for anybody. It goes through, it's kind of like a decision tree document, and you just, someone comes in, you say, hey, wait, wait, here. Here's the questionnaire. Fill this out. If you have a question when you're in the middle of it, let me know. It also tells them what documentation, what substantiation they need to present, depending on what they're asking for, and it will greatly save you time. It'll greatly save you the deed to have these conversations about seven different criteria for leave over and over again. If you want it, just uh, email me after the call, and I will shoot you a copy of it. It's generic and and you can use it. And I think it will save you uh, a lot of time. So that's what I have. Um, And uh, we could probably, I don't know, wait till the end to address questions because it would be good to get through all the information first. We can go to Chris, who sort of picks up where I leave off. And that is sort of like, okay, now people are starting to walk back in. What do you need to do? What do you need to be thinking about?
3: Chris? You got it. Absolutely, John. Thank you very much. As John had mentioned, there's a lot of decision making that's going to come into play. A lot of factors that you have to consider for your particular workplace. Keep in mind, every workplace is different. Um, There's no one size fits all answer and you have to go through the process of evaluating what you need, what your employees need. And if there are particular employees with with specialized requirements or specialized needs, you need to be aware of that and and be ready to address those particular issues. Uh, To start off, when you've made the decision that that you're planning to reopen, you really need to have a plan in place, uh, really a multifaceted plan um, that that starts from the very beginning, uh, sort of your starting point of when do you want to reopen, uh, under what circumstances, who do you want to call back uh, on what kind of schedule You need to really give a lot of thought to that and and may even want to delay a little bit your reopening until you've lined up your plan. Um, Part of that is is going to entail having appropriate procedures in place. What are you doing to protect your workers when they come back? Um, If they interact with customers, are you providing additional uh, protections, uh, actual mechanical protections or what we call engineering protections to help protect the customers, to protect employees? What procedures are you going to put in place for your employees as far as hand washing, uh, maintaining social distancing? Um, A lot of those those steps, a lot of those requirements need to be thought through. And there's a lot of guidance out there. We've got a lot of materials that we can certainly uh, provide and and help you through that. Um, But you need to look at your particular workplace because the requirements you impose are going to need to dovetail directly with, with your particular work environment. You also need to provide training and notices. A big aspect of this, and this is something expected by all the various agencies that are involved in in COVID-19 issues, you need to communicate with your employees. Communication is absolutely key. Um, This is something you'll hear a lot from from us labor and employment attorneys uh, as we go back over the decades and, and what we've advised employers the fundamental nature of the relationship to, to protect your employees, to protect yourselves, to enhance that relationship you have with your employees is communication. It's the solution to most of the problems you're going to have. Um, and, and then in addition, once all of these procedures are in place, once you've communicated with your employees, provided training where necessary, and you've had them come back to the work uh, workplace, what are you doing to monitor and, and to make sure that that people are, are um, addressing issues like, like sickness, illness. If they have concerns that employees aren't following the procedures, what are you doing to ensure um, that, that people are being retrained or, or they're reinforcing those policies and procedures? That should all be a part of whatever process you put in place in moving forward. Um, I'm gonna sort of transition a little bit um, to what it is you need to do to protect your workers in the workplace. And a lot of this comes from OSHA guidance and CDC guidance. Keep in mind, a lot of it's sparse and a lot of it is very vague. Um, you know, A lot of times when, when we're implementing these processes, we'd like some clear guidelines and unfortunately they're not as clear as they should be, uh, but there's a lot of material out there that, that should provide some generic guidance. Um, with, with really three salient points is, is number one, um, the CDC, OSHA, they're expecting employers to develop their own plan. And, and they really mean a written plan. Um, they're going to possibly if there is a problem, um, you may get a request from, from an OSHA investigator for a copy of that plan. And if you don't have one, that could put you at potential risk. So You need something in writing. Um, It doesn't necessarily need to be detailed. It doesn't necessarily need to cross every T and dot every I. Having something is better than having nothing at this point. Um, A second cellular point is you need to communicate that plan. Um, You need to communicate with the people who administer it to make sure they understand what's expected. And Then to the extent that you have your individual frontline employees needing to follow certain procedures and, and needing to follow certain practices, You need to make sure that 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 level of the plan is communicated with them. And then thirdly, there needs to be some level of enforcement and oversight. Um, Those are are sort of the the salient points you'll glean from the guidances that that you can find readily on the the OSHA website. and CDC and again we can provide copies of that just just feel free to send me an email after the the presentation I'd be happy to send copies of those on to you. Um, I'm going to break this down that when you go through the OSHA guidance and and OSHA is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration it governs their rules their requirements their regulations govern um, all workplaces and you need to make sure that you comply with the expectations that they impose their regulations you should be familiar with those, uh, of course. But there's an additional uh, additional guidances that have come out. Some which don't really have the the um, the color of law that they're not necessarily formal rules. But you can rest assured that if you're not following those general expectations, um, at some point you may be held accountable for it. So so keep those in mind. Um, there are five parts to it, essentially. Uh, if you actually look at the the guidance put out by OSHA, there's maybe seven or eight parts, but a lot of it is uh, redundant as they, they emphasize over and over again, some of the same points. I've kind of filtered it down to five, and I'll go through those really quickly for you here. Um, first off, um, all employers need to develop an infectious disease preparedness and response plan. This is part of what I was saying that OSHA expects something in writing. Um, so you actually want to have some written plan in place for how are you dealing with the prospects of COVID-19 Um, right now. What are you doing to prevent it coming into your workplace? What are you doing to protect your employees today? But then also if somebody does become sick, if the the illness infiltrates its way into your workplace, what are you doing to address it? Um, A lot of us may have seen already um, some of the difficulties that specifically meat processing plants have have run into where they've had um, cases of illness in their plant didn't address it proactively and it spread rampantly throughout throughout a, a few plans that we've seen across the United States and now the, the difficulties that those employers are going through because they weren't prepared to address those issues. That plan should um, identify the potential risk areas. Um, your individualized plan should recognize w- what are our risks in our workplace, do our employees interact with customers frequently? Do we have open areas where individuals can come in and put our employees at risk? Should we possibly isolate that out or there alternatives? Um, Are our particular employees at risk because they work closely together? Do we have a manufacturing plant, for instance, where employees work shoulder to shoulder? Or do we have more of a workplace environment where uh, it's more white-collar work and, and employees are more easily distanced throughout the course of the workday? All of this requires Obviously, individualized assessment, and and it does entail individualized assessment for your particular employees as well. Um, you may have employees who are at higher risk, as John had indicated. You can't you can't keep older employees or employees with medical conditions out without pay. Um, you know, on, on the theory that you're uh, protecting them, that might be discriminatory. Um, you, you really need to allow most of your employees to make decisions for themselves. If you're reopening the workplace, you want to avoid engaging in any kind of conduct and individualized assessment that that puts them financially at risk or or leads to discrimination. But you nonetheless want to be sensitive to concerns that they may raise. Um, Be flexible to the extent that you can. Uh, Does it mean that you abandon your expectation that employees come back to work? And the answer to that is no. Um, Generally speaking, you can require existing employees to come back to the workplace as long as you have your ducks in a row and as long as you're making sure to uh, respect whatever protected rights they may have on an individualized basis. Um, Secondly, in in addition to developing an actual written plan, um, you want to make sure that that plan includes basic infection prevention um, steps. I mean simple things like advising your employees to wash their hands frequently, making sure that there's soap and, and maybe hand sanitizer, in break rooms in restrooms, and restrooms and other areas where employees may have common contact on, on surfaces. Um, your plan should at the very least have those basic elements. Um, instructions to employees to stay home if they're sick. Uh, once upon a time, uh, we used to tell people to you know, suck it up, come to work sick, um, work through your work day, get through it. That has changed dramatically. It was already changing even before COVID-19. Now with COVID-19 in place, uh, with with the pandemic that we're dealing with, the guidance has, has clearly reversed. The instruction to your employees should unequivocally be, if you have symptoms of illness, do not come to work. Um, stay home, take the sick day, don't come in, don't bring that risk into the workplace. That, that should be uh, routinely reinforced. Um, you want to encourage simple things, um, you know, and, and I like to say, I've heard others say this, I didn't originate it, but I like to say I was washing my hands before it was cool. Um, But we should definitely encourage people, you know, put your hand over your mouth when you sneeze, Um, wash your hands after you sneeze, you know, those kinds of things. Um, Some people may not think of that and and you wanna reinforce it in your own workplace. Your plan should include those basic elements. Um, Consider other alternatives when you are putting your own plan together. I have a lot of uh, employers who are, are white collar uh, workplaces where they may have had workers work in cubicles um, consider whether you can distance workers uh, some employers i've worked with have extra floor space so they've moved desks apart where that's not practical they've left open desk spaces and relocated some employee stations to have greater distance between workers i i saw a a news article the other day on casinos that are reopening uh, as an example they're actually in, and for those who've been inside a casino the the seats are right next to each other at things like poker tables and at slot machines And and they've literally started closing down slot machines, uh, where where people have to be distanced uh, between the slot machines. At the poker tables, instead of having eight seats around a table, they've now limited it to three seats around a table. You know, these kinds of measures um, may not be practical. You may not have a casino you're operating, of course, but but similar types of steps and measures may be appropriate for your workplace. And you should consider them and and what you can do. Uh, We've seen in the grocery stores, uh, plexiglass barriers that have been put in place. Is that something appropriate for your workplace? That's something you should consider. I'm not saying you need to implement any of these particular measures, but you need to think about them and and think about whether or not they may be practical and and consider that as as part of your overall written response plan. Um, uh, One thing that that I will add in, uh, and we'll get to it more, some of the mechanical uh, changes that you can make to minimize the spread of possible infectious diseases in your workplace, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, The third part of the assessment, I've I've covered the first two parts, have a written plan, number one. Number two, have basic uh, preventative measures implemented and communicated to your employees. Uh, Number three, what do you do when somebody does get sick? My unequivocal answer, and and you'll see some different guidances on this and, and some different instructions, but to me, it's really a simple answer. If somebody's sick, stay at home. Uh, send them home. There's no question in my mind. Um, Unless there's some necessity to have some sick worker in the workplace, and I cannot fathom many uh, reasons or justifications why that might be, my answer is send them home. But in the process of identifying that, encourage employees to self-monitor. Instruct employees, that if they have illness, to notify Uh, the workplace. Um, It's really important, too, if somebody's contracted COVID-19 or they've been in care of somebody and have had really, really frequent um, uh, close contact with somebody who has contracted COVID-19, instruct your employees to notify human resources and notify management. Um, That's something that you want to be aware of. Um, There may be times, and, and I've helped quite a number of employers work through this, where employees have actually been diagnosed with COVID-19 and what steps and measures those employers have taken after learning of that. Um, Do they notify other employees? Who did they notify? What did they do to sanitize the areas that that employee has come in contact with? These are all questions you need to be prepared for and need to be prepared to address. And hopefully there's at least some measure of discussion of this in your overall risk assessment plan and in your response plan. Um, Fourthly, um, you want to develop a communication system. How are you communicating these issues and these instructions and these expectations to your employees? Um, Are you putting out notices to your employees? Uh, One of the things that I encourage employers to do is when you're inviting those employees back into the workplace, send out a welcome welcome back type memo, um, an email, a memo, a letter, however you want to caption it. Um, I actually, I've got a good template. If, if you want it, let me know. I'll, I'll be happy to email that to you. Uh, but, but you want to put something out to your employees, if for no other reason than to provide them with some guidance of what the expectations are, to let them know, hey, we care, we are concerned, we have implemented these measures. Now, the reality is opinions on these issues vary dramatically. We've all recognized it. I've, I've talked with some employees on the Polar One side um, who say, this is ridiculous, we are overreacting, um, we shouldn't be going through all these steps. And I dealt with individuals on the far polar opposite who say, we should all continue to stay locked up in our homes for the next six months so that nobody gets COVID-19. And then there are varying opinions obviously in between. But by putting out our communications, we're sending the signal that, that we respect everybody's viewpoints, we are taking safe measures regardless of what Opinions or, or what side of the spectrum somebody happens to fall on. We respect your viewpoints. Uh, we're, we're not here to debate it. Um, we respect them, but, but here are the measures we're taking to protect you in our workplace. Um, so the communication and training on those communications are going to be absolutely key. Um, fourth um, is the implementation of the controls. What are you doing in your workplace to monitor the situation? Um, you, you, don't want, you don't want individual employees sort of armed like, like personal self-appointed hall uh, monitors. You, you don't want individuals walking down the hall and pointing out violations and instructing each other on what they should or shouldn't be doing. That, that's going to lead to a lot of friction and, and unnecessary Um, uh, individual policing that you don't want. But you want to make sure management um, is aware of the requirements that they're monitoring what's going on in the workplace. You want an avenue. If if employees do have some sort of concern, um, and you don't have to be, you know, specific and say, hey, if you want to police your your fellow employees, notify, you know, Bob over in in HR. Um, But at the same rate, you want to leave open an avenue where um, you've generically notified employees if they have any concerns that they can go to HR, specific individuals in HR in particular, if that's possible. Um, the workplace of- um, um,
1: Chris, I, I, I might add, I, I think that's a particularly important point since just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen everything from fistfights to shootings break out at retail establishment over just that issue. If somebody's not behaving the way somebody else thinks is appropriate, they get Pretty upset about it. So having a, a way to resolve that dispute set up is pr- is pretty key.
3: That's thank you, uh, Otto. That's a really really good point. As you can see, I mean, some people are very up in arms—no um, pun intended—over some of these issues, and and you have to recognize that you may have some personnel, some of your own people, who feel the same way, and and the goal is to minimize the friction in your workplace, get everybody to respect authority uh, within the workplace and respect the procedures you're putting in place with an avenue that if they have additional concerns, they can bring it to your attention. Does that necessarily mean that if somebody wants the the business locked down that you're going to do that? No, uh, that that doesn't necessarily mean it. Um, I know for instance, um, a number of the airlines uh, have a number of employees who've said you should shut down the whole airline. Um, The reality is that that's not a solution the airlines need to continue to operate. And as a matter of fact, Congress has put in financial incentives for the airlines to continue to operate because some level of travel is needed. It's absolutely essential. We want our airlines up and working. And while there may be a few airline employees who feel fundamentally all the airlines should be shut down, um, that's not in the best interest of this country or or in the commercial endeavors in this country. But ultimately, you still wanna have an avenue internal to your company where employees can raise these kinds of concerns. Now, OSHA follows and and has long followed what they call the hierarchy of controls within the workplace. You want to be at least somewhat familiar with what those are. Um, This is something that that has always, like I said, been in place, but it has particular application when we're talking about COVID-19. And the hierarchy is based on what, what OSHA perceives as some of the the most important, it's it's literally a hierarchy with with the most important things employers can do at the top all the way down to uh, maybe less important, less significant measures, but, but things that, that OSHA wants employers to nonetheless be aware of. At the top of it are the engineering controls. What are the engineering controls that employers can put in place? And all of this, again, really should be part of your individualized preparedness um, uh, document that, that you're, you're going to put in place. And there are simple engineering controls, things like air filters. You know, how frequently are you changing the air filters in your workspace? Um, that's important. Do you have proper um, air handling uh, going on in your business? And that's fundamental when we're talking about a pandemic. If you are having HVAC problems, if you're not properly changing the filters, that could be a problem area for you down the, the, uh, down the road. Barriers uh, between workplaces. Uh, we have open work floors, floors in a lot of spaces and that may need to change. You may want, really want to consider if you can change those things, how you can go about changing them. Can you have individuals in individual offices? Can you at least erect barriers, um, increase the distance between some of the working carousels that employees may be in? Um, if you've had shared workplaces where employees rotate through desks, can you change that? Uh, keep in mind if, if Bob works in a workplace and, and he leaves for the day and then Sarah takes over that workplace, um, after Bob leaves, have you disinfected the, the workplace, um, that particular work area between the workers? That's something you need to think about. And again, I'm not telling you you need to do these in every case. I'm not telling you exactly how strict your controls need to be, um, but they are things you need to think about and alternatives need to be considered. So that's number one, are the, administ- or the engineering controls. Number two, and, and next on the level of, of the hierarchy, are the administrative controls. Um, things like reduced contact. Uh, that's, that's really important. Administratively, can you have flexible work schedules? Um, things where you have fewer employees in the workplace at once. Can some employees telecommute? Can some employees partially work in the office and partially telecommute? Can you have modified work schedules where you have half the workforce work the first half of the day and the second half work the second half All with a goal of minimizing the number of people in the workplace at any given point in time. Um, These are alternatives that you should really be thinking through and considering for your particular workplace. Um, Number three, um, what are some of the safe work practices? Um, Practical things like, like, um, are you sanitizing work areas? Um, Are employees um, expected to use some common materials and are their ways around it? For our own workplace, I'll give you an example, for those employees who are coming back to our firm and will be working in the office, we've actually, we've bought stylus uh, pens uh, for employees, everybody to have one of their own, and so when they're using the copying machines or that they're using some of the other equipment in the office, they can take their own personal stylus and instead of touching it with their fingers, they can touch that area with the stylus and they're expected to keep the stylus clean. Um, Those are, you know, some simple measures Uh, that the the stylus pens aren't expensive, but there are additional measures we're taking. We've taken Uh, and are taking the plastic forks out of the break rooms so that people aren't putting their hands all over the plastic forks. Um, And employees are going to be expected to bring in their own coffee mugs and and use and clean their own coffee mugs and keep them in their offices. Again, simple things, but but things that really should be thought through about whether those will work in your particular workplace. And then lastly, and and this this is very workplace dependent and and very unique to the, the particular employer, and those are PPE. PPEs, the, the personal protective equipment. Um, do you have a workplace, manufacturing floor, for instance, where masks might be more appropriate, um, you know, personal garb, uh, safety equipment that might be worn to help protect employees from the spread of disease when they're in those workplaces? Many workplaces, and uh, this is, is what we're doing in mine, is, um, raises the question, do we require masks? And, and if you go to the grocery store, you may see a lot of the workers wearing masks, a lot of workers aren't. Um, and, and sort of the common uh, resolution in many workplaces is to make it um, uh, individualized, let the individual decide. If they wanna wear a mask, that's fine. Um, if they don't, that's fine as well. Um, but, but you want to encourage employees to keep a safe distance, uh, minimize any particular physical touching, things along those lines to help minimize um, particular uh, um, uh, contact that, that may spread COVID-19. Uh, So those are some of the things that you want to go through. Some of the analyses that you want to do. As you can see, There's no rigid requirements here, other than sort of the three characteristics I talked about first. Number one, have a plan. Uh, Number two, communicate that plan or train employees. And then number three, uh, make sure that there's some level of monitoring afterward. Uh, As long as you're doing those three things and being sensible about your approaches and your plans, you you should be fine. Um, You really should do the necessary things that you need to do to protect your workplace. Um, I'm now gonna dovetail a little bit into something John had talked about and, and that raises the issue raises the question of what do i do if i have employees who are refusing to come back to work um as john had mentioned you can't exactly strong arm your employees i mean you you do have some leverage and, and certainly for most employees if they refuse to work and you need them to come back you do have the option of terminating your employees but it's always always an individualized assessment and and the foundation your starting place is have you provided reasonable protections in your workplace in order to expect employees to come back to work if you haven't it's really not fair to expect that and employees can refuse to work if you have an an unduly dangerous workplace so so you need to make sure you've got that firm foundation and working forward Um, but when you evaluate each of your individual situations any employee who's expressing fear or concern and you may have some people who have extreme fears or extreme concerns And so you need to be prepared for that. Um, Again, you need to individually look at the individual employee and look at their particular situation. I recommend sort of a a four-step approach when working with your employees on this. Um, Number one, generally, um, um, you can't require it, but you need to have that dialogue, okay? Um, If an employee expresses concern, um, they express that they don't want to work, you have to ask the question why. Um, get on the phone to them, have have some updated emails and have some back and forth dialogue. Why do you have a particular concern? You may, you may come to discover they really have some legitimate reason why they don't want to come back. Um, if you just assume that somebody says, No, I don't want to come back, and you jump to that reaction of saying, well, then you're fired, you may overlook the fact they may have a protected right. Um, to to stay out of the workplace and you're simply unaware of it because you haven't gone through that dialogue. So that's your your first step. Really unpack that reason and get the information you need to be able to respond appropriately. Uh, Be sensitive and understanding and and to the extent you can, try to be flexible with that employee. Um, Number two, uh, consider alternatives. Consider Um, And actually, before getting to that, consider leave rights. Consider whether or not the employee has some legal right to leave. You know, when you start unpacking their reason, they may say, look, I don't want to come back because I have kids at home I need to take care of because their school closed. They've just now raised a protected leave right. Um, They have a right under that circumstance, under the the FMLA Expansion Act. Um, They have the right to, to possibly stay home and take care of their children. It needs to be evaluated. Um, there are a number of criteria that come into play, but but they now raise something that, on the face of it, looks like they may have a leave right, and and to top it off, it may even be a paid leave right. Um, so you need to evaluate that, and it's always an individualized assessment. Um, you may have, and this is a big big area, um, our ADA uh, rights. Um, if you've got somebody um, with with some sort of paranoid disorder or you know some some mental condition, and their expectation. That the workplace stay closed or their expectation or or expressed fear about coming back to the workplace may be fostered by an actual mental condition and you need to be aware of that. Um, If they've expressed look I can't come back, I've got um, a diagnosis, I've got a generalized anxiety disorder, I can't be around people right now, I have obsessive compulsive disorder, I can't come back, Um, you need to recognize that that may be a a reason to enter into some sort of dialogue over an accommodation. Um, We know generally that that, uh, preferred accommodations aren't necessarily the ones you need to give. Um, Extended, unended leave may not be an appropriate or required accommodation. But before you jump to any of those conclusions, you have to enter into an interactive dialogue with the employee if they have some sort of disability that's protected by law. So um, all of this requires individualized assessment, and you've got to go through that process and make sure you've ruled out possible leave rights um, under the various laws that come into play. Uh, Thirdly, always evaluate uh, possible alternatives. Um, and, And whether they have a leave right, whether it's a protected right, whether they're disabled or not, consider alternatives for all employees. Um, Is this somebody who, practically speaking, can work remotely? Is it somebody who can work a part-time schedule so they're in the office on a limited basis? Is it somebody we can work with their schedule and work different hours of the day when they have minimal contact with other employees? Um, Again, it's all individualized, as you can see, but it is something that you need to go through and consider For all of your workers it's going to protect you against legal claims and it's going to reinforce for employees that you care about them and you are concerned about their well-being and then lastly um, after you've gone through all these processes uh you know all this this lengthy um, uh, evaluation you need to implement your decision make a decision go forward but then monitor how effective it is is it working is it not working are there tweaks that we need to make to it are are there um alternative uh, proposals that we need to start to consider all of this is part of that process that that you really need to go through um and so um in bringing this in i mean this this kind of summarizes the steps you need to go through the considerations you need to implement what you do how you handle employees who may not want to come back Um, understandably as john had mentioned uh, for some workers they may continue to receive unemployment they may not uh, it just depends on the circumstance. Um, you know, I've, I've advised employers that uh, while some employees who refuse to return to work may not qualify for unemployment, they may. Uh, it's really up to the Department of Economic Security. Um, as the employer, it's not your decision. It, it's, it's the government's decision. And, and so you wanna kind of stay out of delving too far into those kinds of issues. Um, the advice you just give to your employees is, look, we're calling you back. We expect you to be back. Um, if you have a, an individualized reason why not, well, we're happy to hear it and talk through it. Um, but otherwise, uh, we need you back to work. Um, that, that's, uh, that's primarily it. And then after you do um, launch back in and you get your employees back to, to uh, work, monitor how effective all of these measures are. Now, one measure, for instance, I've seen a lot of employers adopt are taking temperatures every morning when employees come in um, evaluate whether that's something that you want to do. I've seen employers go left on the issue. I've seen employers go right. There's no requirement expressly that you do it, that you not do it. You do have the right um, under some very well established guidelines to, to take temperatures when employees show up every day. Um, have to keep in mind you need to keep that information confidential. It is considered a medical exam. Um, you can't share with other employees You know what, what particular temperatures are. Or, or even if an employee has told you, hey, I have COVID-19, you can't announce to the workplace that Bob Smith has COVID-19. You're, you're now revealing confidential medical information. Um, you can't obviously notify employees, hey, we have an employee who is in the workplace who has contracted COVID-19. You may have had contact, we can't share names, but we are putting you on alert on notice that that has happened. Um, but again, all of these are evaluated on a case by case basis and you need to be aware um, that there will be requirements that come into play. So I've, I've talked for quite a while, uh, probably tired of hearing my voice. So uh, I'm gonna uh, sort of pass things off to Otto and uh, he'll fill you in so- on some further details.
2: Hey, may I just add one thing real quickly before Otto starts? Uh, Before we got on the call this morning, I hopped on the uh, CDC website because the CDC just released uh, pretty much overnight sort of a new set of guidelines. It distilled what previously were like 70 pages of stuff into some what they call tools, which are one-page documents that are sort of like decision tree documents that, you know, ask questions and tell you what to do in certain situations. And I will tell you that it has become very, if you get to the section in there about businesses, workplaces, and so on, it's become very granular, the resources that they have now offered. And the CDC then links you to all of the OSHA material. And what I found to be the best document on there right now is the FAQ for employers. And they have a whole list of things like, what do I do if I find out, like what Chris was just saying, what, what do I do if I find out that someone has it? What do I do if someone tells me that they were exposed to somebody with it. And you just click on each of those questions and then it opens up a window and it tells you what you should do. It's just a putting together the the written plans that uh, Chris talked about. I really would get on the CDC website, click on the OSHA uh, resources within that website, and you pretty much probably would be able to lift a lot of that material in its entirety and then turn it into your plan. If you, you know, you don't have to start from scratch with any of this stuff. So definitely uh, recommend that you check out the CDC website.
1: Uh, John, I, I did the same thing this morning. And I think it's particularly important because every other government agency refers to the CDC for its standards. Mm-hmm. So,
3: yeah, and add, to add to that, I, I do think that's a great idea. Make sure whatever you're clip, clicking into your plan, though, actually applies in your workplace. So the last thing you want to do is click uh, put any kind of procedures or expectations in a plan and then not follow them. Um, that could actually create more, more harm than good. So you, it's kind of like, um, you know, we, we have uh, form employment handbooks and, and, we'll send those out to clients. Advice is always, don't just put your name on it and put it in place because there may be a lot of provisions in there you're not actually following and that could create a lot of problems. So, so just make sure you're applying, um, what you're actually putting into your plans.
2: Yeah. If you're running a call center, don't use the restaurant stuff. I mean, because there are some (laughs) business specific guidance that they have on CDC for specific industries. But like Chris said, just don't do this quickly and just throw it together because when OSHA asks for your plan and you're running a call center and it's talking about how you clean, how you wipe the bar down, it's going to be a problem. So, yeah. All right, Otto, are you ready?
1: All right, ready to go. Uh, So I I know we're getting tight on time. We started a few minutes late, but we wanted to update you on some of the financial and business issues that are, that are uh, going on uh, with some of the funding sources and, and the, the treasury department's responses to all of this. Pretty sure the treasury department needs help. And I've given serious thought to volunteering one day a week. Um, Little, little concerned about those folks. Uh, You, you, I've probably heard the last week or so, the big issue uh, has been uh, who should or who should not repay a paycheck protection loan. You may, you all know if you applied for those loans that you had to make a certification, both that the, there was a need because of COVID to support your business and and that that in addition to that, the funds would be used to pay for employees and uh, employees payroll, uh, mortgages, cert- certain mortgages, rent, and utility payments. Um, and the question after the first round of PPP money went out so quickly, you'll remember that the president and the treasury secretary became uh, uh, upset with several large institutions who qualified under the size standards, but they thought shouldn't have taken the money. And ever since then, Treasury Department has been retroactively uh, producing guidance that that to try and force companies to give the money back because there's a limited appropriation and that has to be spread between all of the uh, people who need it. Uh, they say that the original intent was to benefit small businesses, not not these larger businesses. And so you remember that they, the first thing they did, the SBA has the SBA administers this program and most of the others. And the SBA put out a, a frequently asked question set, and question thirty one that they added about a week or a week and a half ago. Um, said that if you were a company, a public company with substantial value and access to to other alternative sources of capital, you shouldn't have gotten a loan. Well, that sent sent everybody into a tailspin trying to figure out who had to pay it back because the Treasury Department gave a May 7th deadline for repayment. Uh, Once the consternation started to surface, then the Treasury Department extended that to May 14th. Uh, then they took both deadlines away altogether and said instead, any business who got less than $2 million in loans was would be deemed to have made their certifications in good faith. Any business over $2 million in loans would be audited and will do other audits as appropriate. Uh, that was important because the government has three levers against businesses who they conclude didn't qualify for the loans. The first lever is they can deny loan forgiveness. The second lever is they could bring criminal action under a false statements uh, statute. Uh, think of Martha Stewart and, and what got her in trouble. And then there is something called the Federal False Claims Act, uh, which provides for civil liability if a company or a person makes a false or misleading statement in connection with making a claim for money from the government. Uh, that False Claims Act statute is particularly troublesome because the the complainant can either be the government or someone they call a relator, anybody who believes that a mistake has been made. And so it could be be one of your employees who thinks you didn't qualify. Um, and so the fact that the government came in and said, anybody who gets a loan of less than $2 million is deemed to have made a good faith certification. Well, that was a big sigh of relief and it should be for most of you because uh, now you don't have to worry about that kind of liability. Having having said that, uh, there, there are audits coming And we've had several interesting questions about that may impact those. And everybody who's gotten a PPP loan likely wants to have it forgiven because that's part of the statutory benefit. And to have it forgiven, you have to file an application with your lender. And our guess is that that application is going to be robustly scrutinized, not at all like the application for the loan was just sent through. Uh, we think that the lenders are going to be required to look heavily and some of the wording of the frequently asked questions from treasury and SBA indicate that the government will also be looking at those applications. So we think it's important at this point that you start documenting both the basis for your certifications. Why did you believe that your business was going to be negatively impacted describe in some detail uh, in a written form the uncertainty the specific uncertainty that you face because of covid if you're a restaurant and uh, mayor gallegos or or uh, governor ducey said you can't serve in uh, food in-house anymore well it's it's fairly obvious that that you can demonstrate the problem by an official document but your business may not have had to shut down you may be an essential business and in fact if you look at other standards that the Treasury is putting out, the uh, the tax credit against employer FICA tax uh, that's available to employers outside of the PPP loans and the the, uh, the Coronavirus Act, the first act that was passed, um, th- provides standards that that says that if that if you were an essential business and you were operating, you're not gonna be eligible for that because you can't demonstrate the requirements of that statute. So it's important we think to document what the specific uncertainties was and what your financial need was. You should go back in time and look at your financial projections early on, earlier in the year and last year, what was your performance? Compare it to now, compare it to what you knew and document what you knew at the time that you made those certifications. Uh, Again, for smaller employers, we don't believe the criminal liability or the False Claims Act liability will now be an issue, but we do believe that that documentation will be very important uh, with respect to loan forgiveness. So comparing your financial analysis and letting people, being prepared to demonstrate to auditors, uh, those issues are important. Um, We think that uh, well, we'd hoped by today to have guidance on loan forgiveness. There was an article in the news two days ago that said it would be coming out that day. And here we are no guidance yet. So more, more to come on loan forgiveness, but now is the time not when you're not under the gun of, of an audit to figure out or to document all the reasons that it made sense for you to apply for aid in the first place. Um, the, the um, just lost my thought. A couple, couple of other points that, that uh, we think you should be prepared for. Uh, remember that you all have health plans, for, or many of you may have health plans, you may have pension plans, and in a joint statement of, of about a week ago, the Internal Revenue Service and the Employee Benefit Security Administration extended the deadline uh, for most of deadlines with respect to plans, plan restatements, um, claims for benefits, COBRA notices, COBRA deadlines for payment, COBRA deadlines for elections. So it it behooves you to connect with your insurance companies and your plan providers to make sure that you're properly coordinating notices and elections. Uh, the, the, The wording is that you have to disregard the period from March 1st, 2020, until 60 days after the national emergency is declared at an end. Well, that could be some time. We're gonna we're starting to reopen, and I think everybody expects spikes in the illness uh, as a result of the reopening, which is likely to extend the federal emergency period. Meanwhile, there are people who are off work. You furloughed them. You've laid them off it's unclear what their status for, for COBRA coverage is. And I think given the uncertainty about the time deadline, it's pretty important that that you coordinate well with your benefits providers so that you're accurately measuring people's, uh, people's uh, uh, notice periods and election periods. Uh, the worst thing is to have a legal obligation uh, without an insurance policy to back it up. So you don't want to get into that kind of a situation. Um, the other thing I, I think it's time to start looking at are the tax credits. Eventually, uh, you'll you'll be filing income tax returns with respect to this period, and there are tax credits available for uh, for benefits. Some of the leave benefits there are immediate tax credits uh, available, and so it's it's time to start reviewing those alternative sources. Also if you sponsor a qualified retirement plan uh, you are permitted but not required under the cares Act to distribute to allow distributions uh, to participants if the plan allows those distributions then other than for uh, certain uh, money purchase pension plan and certain pension plans that, that have limitations uh, the the participant must take the the distribution in income either in 2020 or at their election over a three-year period. And within the three years, they are entitled to repay the distribution as a a rollover. Um, Interestingly, no one has commented yet on whether, since they have to include the distribution in income, whether the Uh, repayment is subject to some kind of a deduction. We expect more regulations to come on that but again it's another source of revenue and I think what we're going to see is a more extended period of time. Uh, Don't forget your PPP loans funds must be used within an eight-week period. So it was intended to be what the government perceived as the relatively short period of the crisis. Well now the crisis is going to go on for a while. that, that brings to mind an, an issue that, that's been raised by a number of clients. And and that is, what do I do if I can't use my PPP money all within the eight weeks? Well, the answer is that what is not used within the, within the eight weeks will not be forgivable. Uh, so we've been telling people it's pretty important to segregate your funds into separate accounts. Uh, I, I doubt that the government will trace funds, uh, but it's nice to be able to demonstrate that you put the funds, you segregated the funds and you use them only for the qualified expenses. Remember that you can only use 25% of that loan money for expenses other than payroll, qualified expenses other than payroll. Uh, yesterday, a question came up uh, from, a, from a client. Well, if I, I got my, pay, my PPP loan and I've used it to pay payroll, but now I need to buy parts, supplies, whatever I need to buy that aren't qualified expenses in order to have more work, in order to be able to pay more payroll. Can I use the money that way? I think that raises a risk that if if the government can trace how you use the money and when you use the money, that that they could deny loan forgiveness. Will they? Probably not, particularly if you have less than $2 million. Not a likely scenario. The safest move is to segregate funds and use the segregated funds only for for qualified expenses. But if you're short on capital, that's going to be an issue that you could face. those are those are most of the the benefits issues I wanted to cover. I, I I will note that the Arizona Industrial Commission, yester no, effective today, put out yesterday, issued a policy statement that is subject to challenge and review. But at this point, they're taking the position that workers' compensation uh, claims based on COVID cannot be categorically denied just because it's. Part of the emergency, but they have to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. Um, the The other thing that that we've seen that that is helpful is this is not the first time we've had a, a pandemic situation. There's a flu problem a few years ago, and so you find the government agencies referring back to documents that they've used in the past, even though the emergency wasn't as broad-based as this. Um, they're referring back to those. Uh, the documentation and the treatment that they gave to issues back uh, in other situations. For example, there's there's some documentation for tax issues surrounding Hurricane Katrina, and it was very limited to one specific geographical area, but the principles are being applied to this more broad circumstance. So I, I think with that, I'm going to quit talking and invite uh, any discussion or comments or questions that you've got.
2: I would like to add one thing real quickly before the questions start coming in. A very good client of mine uh, chatted during the course of the webinar while we've been talking, uh, and she shares with us that Maricopa County has added to its website helpful information uh, for close contact uh, as well, close contact within the workplace. They have a FAQ for employers and businesses, it's easy to navigate and it, it refers to the CDC as well as the FDA for food industry issues. So in addition to the CDC website, which links to OSHA, you might wanna hop on uh, the county website because apparently they have a really good uh, FAQ uh, source tool there for all you guys.
1: I, I, I will say that this is a little bit of an odd way to run the government. Um, FAQs are, are okay and they're helpful. I wonder whether they have the force of law long-term because the the Treasury Department, for example, seems to be regulating by FAQ as opposed to regulations with notice and comment periods. And they have a statutory obligation to adopt regulations and they haven't done it yet. So I, you know, I think this only goes so far. I think when we get to the enforcement side of PPP loans, for example, I think it may be easier to demonstrate good faith and to rebut an attack by the government because of the uh, disorganized way in which they've approached some of these
2: issues. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely.
1: But I do, but I do think to John's point, it's important to read the FAQs that are relevant to you and, and use those in your planning and document that you're using them because it makes it really hard for the, an auditor to come back and say you did something wrong when you put in his face, there inconsistent or, or uh, retroactive statements.
0: All right, let's open it up to some questions. Anybody have anything? Yes, I do. All right. So if you have, thank you. If you have employees who identify themselves as high risk in the beginning and we're transitioning our employees to come back into the office, um, do we have to, is it okay to leave those employees last or if they wanna come back into the office, we have to allow them to come back in as well?
3: I can, yeah, I can, I can jump in and answer this. Um, employers shouldn't make any assumptions about an employee's current intent or current state based on what they've said before. Uh, somebody's indicated that they're high risk, or they may have a desire to stay home, or, or even maybe they've left work, uh, left the workplace earlier than than most employees. You still want to reach it back out to them and have a dialogue. Don't assume that because they said something in the past, they necessarily feel the same way today or that the the circumstance continues to apply. Um, What you want to do is you want to reach out to them, invite them back. If you're bringing all the employees back at the same time, invite them as well. And, And you can maybe make an exception for them. You can contact them and say, look, we're not going to require you to come back. You have high risk indicators, as you've told us before if you'd like to come back you're welcome to as well we want to be we want to avoid being overly paternalistic when it comes to people's age and medical conditions the law is really clear that except um, in cases where there is a direct threat and we won't get into that that's a convoluted doctrine um, you are not to assume that somebody is is necessarily unable to perform particular work tasks because of their medical condition or their their age you really have to go through individualized assessment so to simplify, call them up, talk to them, see if they want to come back, and if they do, bring them back.
0: Okay, thank you. Thank you. Anyone else?
1: Chris, what if they don't want to come back? What if they don't want to lose their job, but they're not ready yet? How will that analysis differ? Yeah, I'm, I'm encouraging employers to try to be as
3: flexible as possible. Try to be understanding, um, not only because you want to avoid a potential legal issue, but but it's good for morale. It's it's good for employees. It, it shows respect and you care about them, especially if they have high risk indicators. And we know from that those guidances from the CDC and OSHA, they are encouraging employers to be very sensitive to employees who do have high risk indicators. Um, that being said, there may be times where you know you really need employees back. Um, you need to go through that individualized assessment um, to determine whether or not you can make those exceptions and what happens if you start making exceptions, how that might snowball on you. So uh, there's a lot of individualistic uh, determination, but I'm encouraging employers really think long and hard, try to be flexible, consider alternatives. Sometimes that's the solution. You may have somebody who doesn't want to be in the workplace, but might be able to telecommute. That might work, or maybe there's some minimal workplace um, contact that they have, and the rest of the work they can do from home. Think about all those alternatives.
1: Keep keep in mind that you know we're we're used to thinking that once someone has used up their available leave, if they don't come back to work, they're done. And we're in a period of time that's a little vaguer than that right now. There are some people who may stay home because they can get paid unemployment insurance that's greater than they normally would get. And so they may feel like they wanna do that to be safer. So until the governor rescinds that part, that executive order until the federal benefits uh expire there may be this weird middle ground where you you don't act as categorically um at the same time you can't discriminate so if you're gonna what you do for one you got to do for all so developing a framework for individually identifying the issues is pretty important
0: are there any resources or guidance for employees that need to travel
2: You mean resources Um, in terms of uh, precautions you should sort of tell them about when they're traveling or resources about whether or not you should allow them to travel or what?
0: um, I would say resources about um, bringing some people that are furloughed back on and that need to go into a traveling role. I think you guys gave some good guidance on drilling down and talking to them about returning to work. But we have – employees that both go into customers' facilities locally and employees that get on airplanes and travel. So I'm, I'm looking, I guess, for resources on what guidance we should give to the employees and what they should be doing to protect themselves, what you know, our liability is from the PPP standpoint. And I wrote down all the resources you guys gave. And so if those are the best ones to look at, I just figured from the travel perspective if you guys had any other suggestions.
2: Well, I can tell you, I mean, if you look at the CDC website and you you sort of get to the point where you're looking specifically at advice for businesses and employers, you know, the first thing that uh, is prominently there is the discouragement about travel. But it sounds to me like your business, you know, part and parcel of your business involves travel. So you can't really get around it, assuming there isn't some way to do what your people need to do remotely and uh, my my guess is although i haven't looked at it specifically i'm i'm going to bet that on the CDC website there is going to be some resources about travel and it, they, they may not just be specific to uh employers and 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 the workforce the guidance <laughs> may just be relating to travel generally and but it might
1: reaction, be called coronavirus and travel in the united states
2: yeah, there you go. And so I would just I would just adopt that, look at that and and consider that it's not employer employee specific, but it's going to help you sort of develop some guidance for these people who need to go out. Yeah, and and to add to that, one of the the key
3: points that I do see frequently including in that guidance is have your employees minimize interpersonal contact while they travel. So if they're they're delivering items, picking up items, um work with your customers work with the contact point suppliers what have you to have deliveries and and pickups arranged to to minimize uh, too much interpersonal contact
1: i just posted to the to the chat the link to the cdc's reference to the travel issue uh if if your company is one that restricted travel as some did then you know i think you've already gone through the analysis of twice that was necessary for safety. And I think it falls into the same kind of analysis that Chris went over for safe workplace. You need to evaluate what the carriers are doing. You know, For example, United Airlines the other day announced they would keep all middle seats open and then they sent an airplane out with every seat full. So I, I think you, you may be needing to select between carriers. You may need be needing to monitor policies look at the CDC information there are a number of factors and you know for employees that have to travel that's part of your workplace I guess
2: Keith Keith asks in the chat uh, for the plans that Chris was describing that need to be built by all businesses do they need to be made public to customers along with employees no they do not Um, although I think you guys need to and this is going to depend on what type of business you've got um, I think you want to let people who are entering your Uh, place of business, know that you are being conscientious about this. And you may, you may post things, you may, you may have something sitting on a reception desk that describes what you're doing or what may apply to them as they're entering your space. But to specifically answer the question, no, you don't, these aren't plans that you develop internally that you then need to somehow publish to the world. You don't need to do that.
1: But, but as with all plans, if you adopt it, follow it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and then and you should probably assume that if you ever get into a dust up with somebody like OSHA or somebody else, it's someone may eventually see it that doesn't that you know, it's not gonna be limited just to your workers. So keep that in mind as you're drafting it. But to answer the specific question, no, it doesn't need to be made public.
1: Well, and, and remember, the, the, one of the big questions that's looming for everybody, and is the subject of a lot of discussion at state and federal level uh, about legislation, is whether there's liability if somebody comes in your place and gets sick. Um, you know, I went to a store the other day, for example, and they were scrupulous outside. You had to stand on X's, and you were six feet apart, and they measured who went in, so they had the, a limited number inside the store, but once you got in the store... Nobody told you anything about where to go or what to do or how close to stand. And there were people who were closer than I was comfortable with. And I'm, you know, I'm not shy about all this stuff, but uh, you know, once you got in the store, people would come by you and wouldn't observe social distancing and you'd have to step back. So, you know, think through what works for your place because I think there's liability implications as well as employment implications.
2: We got another question, how do we deal with employees who will not return to work due to childcare issues? Great question, because you could debate if there's a worker on furlough and then you call them back up and they say, you know, I, I can't come back because my child's school has been closed or the daycare has been shuttered and I have to take care of them and I have no way to either work or work remotely. That's like the, that's the test for expanded FMLA lead. And so, but they're not working. so are they entitled to that benefit or not? In other words, do, do they, is that entitlement pop back up once they start working again or, or can they exploit that benefit basically while they're on a furlough? And I think, me anyway, and Otto and Chris can chime in, but once you call them back, once you say, come back to work now um, and they say, okay, well, now you've basically uh, restarted me. I can't because I've got the kids at home and et cetera, et cetera. I, given the fact that you're not gonna pay for this leave anyway, you're gonna get reimbursed for it. I don't think I would split that hair and deny it. I think I'd probably give the person the leave, you know, and you're gonna get reimbursed uh, as quickly as your next payroll by just deducting the leave amounts you're gonna pay to that person uh, out of your withholding. That's my view because I think if you take a hard line and say, well, no, you didn't technically come back yet, so you can't exploit that leave entitlement, I just think you're looking for a problem, Chris. I mean, you know, I, I, the answer might be different if if this money was coming directly out of your pocket and you had no way to recover it, but you do. You do. Well, yeah, the other I, the other thing. Sorry, I would, go ahead, on
1: The other thing I would say about that is, we're sti- we're in a period right now for the next couple three months, whatever it is, when you know, the disease isn't tamped down, there isn't a vaccine, and that kind of issue is going to be a more likely concern. I'd rather be dealing with it and eliminating the leave now than waiting six months from now yeah. and then have to fight it in, in that environment. Right. Good point.
3: Yeah. And and, and to add to that, I am in full agreement. I mean, the Department of Labor has made it very clear that these paid leave rights don't apply when people are out. If you've called them back, um, you've basically taken them off furlough, even if their response is "I can't come back." you've already made the invitation. I'm in full agreement with john don't don't invite the dispute don't invite the legal claim, don't invite the problem, put them out on the paid leave if they qualify, uh, they may not. I mean you have to go through that evaluation, but if they qualify you know and document it, um, this is something that gets overlooked by a lot of employers, by the way. Document when employees are taking these kinds of paid leave, and you're making the deduction from the payroll payments. You need documentation to back it up because if you're audited by the IRS and you don't have documentation, you may run into some difficulty. So make sure all of this is being properly documented as well. But that being said, it's um, I wouldn't hesitate to to grant the leave under those circumstances. You're going to get the money back. John,
0: do you see we have one more question? Maybe we can make this the last question. If you guys want to add your um, emails, maybe your contact information for the participants, maybe they can email you directly if they have something that comes up later this evening or this weekend, they think of something.
2: Uh, hey, Sally, I'm looking at the chat and I don't see an additional question. Could you okay. Read?
0: There's one here. Um, did you get the one from the um, says owner? Can someone address the PUA, DUA? No, that?
2: I don't see that. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, oh, that's because they sent it directly to me. I'm sorry. Can someone address the PUA, DUA for self-employed regarding members of an LLC that can't be on payroll and we need to work modified hours. So we are working some hours, but nothing like usual. We are able to file for, are we able to file for PUA, DUA with state wages and if so, for how long?
2: Chris?
3: <laughs> what? What's distracted me? myself? I apologize. I didn't quite get the question. Could you ask uh, that? What again? is P U A G U A?
2: Yeah, that's why. That's why. That's, that's why, why I, we're looking I, like this. Chris, I turfed it to Chris.
3: I'm. I'm quickly trying to Google.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, okay. So it's. It came from somebody call, um, named Owner. So maybe they'd like to just unmute and ask the question.
3: Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, the the pandemic unemployment. Yeah, there's actually two kinds of unemployment programs in place right now. Um, And I'm trying to remember the timing. One Is the expanded unemployment that provides the extra $600 a week provided by the federal government that has one expiration date. I want to say that expires at the end of June or July. I can't remember the exact expiration. I think it might be the end of June. And then the other program um, allows for um, uh, expansion of um, um, the uh, um, uh, paid leave that the, the federal government supplements to the states. It's a slightly different program. And I think that expires at the end of the year. That's really the nuanced distinction. A lot of times I don't get directly involved in exactly how unemployment, the unemployment aspects work, because that's it's really the onus is on the employee to apply through the state government agency here in Arizona. It's the Department of Economic Security and, and we let the government decide when they're going to grant unemployment and when they're not. It's really not the employer's decision when that's going to happen.
0: Thank you. Any last questions? If not, we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. If you three would put your emails in the chat for everyone, that would probably be helpful. Um, yeah.
1: Sally the other thing I'd mention is if people need to see additional resources we have a pretty significant number of articles and and uh, uh, posts of video uh, presentations including these on our website jsslaw.com and you can go to the COVID page and see all our resources there
0: okay all right anything else Chris John
2: no, I think that's it. Thanks, everybody.
0: Mr. Lawson.
2: Thanks, folks.
0: Thank you all um, for being on the call today, and and Chris, John, Otto, thank you guys for taking time to um, educate and inform. Once again, I'm sure that as you're preparing for this call, it probably changed five times, <laughs> uh, and it'll probably change again before we even hit the uh, the the. Um, View for everybody to see this because we did record it. So, um, if you uh, find out that there's more information we need to get out, we'll start another call and we'll we'll do it again. Thank you, thank you, thank Thank you. you. Bye
2: bye.